talk to you about a subject on repentance. Now, I know some of you may think that, you know, repentance is not considered a very popular message like, you know, healing or uh, prosperity or spiritual warfare or anything, uh, you know, something like that. But that's because repentance is not considered the order of the day for some people. But I must tell you that the importance of repentance cannot be overestimated. Because you see, repentance is more important than healing. Repentance is more important than prosperity. Repentance is more important than spiritual warfare or any of the other popular messages in the Bible. That's not to say that all these other things are not important. It's just not as important as repentance. Because you see, repentance is the very foundation of Christianity. Amen? But yet we still have many folks who come to church on Sunday just to get a boost for the week instead of hearing the complete gospel. But let me just tell you that the first message ever recorded from the lips of Jesus was on the subject of repentance. In Matthew 4 and verse 17, shortly after Jesus came out of the wilderness after being tempted of the devil, the Bible says that from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You also read in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 where John the Baptist, who was the first to come on the scene, and his very first message was repentance. In uh, Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, began preaching a very powerful message under the, uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, 3,000 people was led to repentance and were added to the kingdom of heaven. And you also had the Apostle Paul, who also preached repentance to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. So it's not as, re- as though repentance is considered secondary to the gospel or the gospel message. No, repentance is the gospel message. And that's something that I want you to know and understand today when you leave. And just to make you understand how important and vital that repentance is, is that when Jesus, after his resurrection, he gathered his disciples together to commission them to preach the gospel to all nations. And this is what he said. He says, repentance and remissions must be preached in his name to all nations. So again, I can't stress enough how important repentance is. So let's begin by talking about what is repentance. So if you have your Bibles with you, go to Ezekiel chapter 18. And while you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, this platform to speak your word and deposit life into each one of our our people. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, Lord God, that you stir up our hearts this morning. Get our attention, Father God. And Lord, I thank you, Father, for encouraging us and leading us and guiding us through your word. Father, I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to move and to flow freely tonight, uh, this morning. And Father, I thank you, Father God, that you will not disappoint each one of us, but you have a word for every one of us today. And Father, we come expecting to hear and expecting to receive what you have in store for us today. And for this, we thank you. In your precious son's name we pray. Amen Amen. and amen. In Ezekiel chapter 18, and in verse 21, says this. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, and he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. 
because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Now, what I want you to notice is that the word turn is used twice in, three, in two of these three verses. And that word turn in the Hebrew is the same Hebrew word in the Old Testament that is translated repent. So we're talking about the same thing. Because repentance is simply turning away from something and turning to something. But I also want you to notice two other things about this passage of Scripture. The one thing, the first thing is that we see his attitude towards repentance. Repentance is God's way of reconnecting us and keeping us connected together between him and us. It's his lifeline to keep us connected with God. Another thing I want you to notice is that repentance or the purpose of his repentance or the purpose of the gift of repentance. And that is that we may have life and not death. The word repentance is also important in the New Testament. The word repentance in the New Testament in the Greek literally means to think differently. It also means to change or a change of mind or a change of thinking or a change of attitude, or a change of ways. It also means to turn away from something. To put it simply, repentance is when you realize that the way you've been walking, the way you've been talking, the way you've been acting, the way you've been thinking, and the, way you, and the direction that you've been going in is wrong, and you need to turn, make an about face, a 180-degree turn. Not an 85-degree turn, not a 50-degree turn, not even a 360-degree turn, because you only end up right where you started. No, repentance, according to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21, is a complete, radical, and total change. Repentance is a decision that one makes, not based on emotions, and certainly not based on, on any rationalization. Repentance is based on a convicted heart that causes a person to completely change or to completely turn around in the way they think, believe, or live. I'm not talking about a casual change. I'm not talking about a temporary change. You you know what I'm talking about. You know, you, you repent from something, and then three weeks down the road, maybe a month or even two months, you're right back where you started. That's not repentance. That's temporary repentance. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about, I'm talking about a person changing from top to bottom. I'm talking about a total transformation that affects every part of a person's life. Let me give you an example. Go to Luke chapter 15. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the prodigal son. It's a very familiar one. I'm sure you all know it. But here we read where the prodigal son, which is the youngest son, he goes to his father, asking his father for his share of the inheritance early. And when the father gives him his share of inheritance, the son packs up his bag, gets up, and leaves home. Soon after that, and after a series of bad choices and bad decisions, he ended up a life of hunger, lack, and destitution. Well, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself here. 
the fact that he made those choices that led him to that situation, you kind of wonder, isn't that the way it always is with us? When we wander away from God to do our own thing, only to find ourselves in spiritual poverty. I'm talking about spiritually starvation. I'm talking about spiritual lack. I'm talking about spiritual destitution. When we look in the prodigal son's life, and again, this is the wonderful, so beautiful about this story because it demonstrates the very principle of godly uh, repentance. And beginning in verse 17, it says this. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? And I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great boy off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, what I want you to look at is this. His repentance began with an awareness of his unwise choices and that his circumstances was a result of his poor decision-making. In other words, he didn't sit around blaming somebody else for his situation. He wasn't making excuses for his situation. He wasn't rationalizing his situation. No, he realized that he and he only was the one responsible for his situation. He was the one that made himself or brought himself in those circumstances. In verse 17, we see that when he says, but when he came to himself. So knowing that the circumstances came from an an unrighteous behavior, the prodigal son grieved over his mistakes and then acknowledged or confessed that he sinned against God. It's almost similar to another uh, situation with David. When King David committed adultery, and then had her husband killed and then made her his wife after finding out that she was bearing his child. See, things don't change today. Life is still the same. Sin is always sin. But we see something similar here because David said in Psalm 51 and verse 3, and you don't need to turn there, and I don't have that in my notes, for acknowledge, for I acknowledge or I realize my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Then he said in the next verse, against you and only you have I sinned, and I have done what is evil in your sight. So what we see here that both of these separate incidents have something in common. Both of these men recognized that and acknowledged that they sinned and that their sin was against God. In verse 18, we said, I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So repentance will always bring someone to the point of acknowledging and then saying or confessing, I have sinned. Not because of this man, I sinned. Or not because of that situation, I've sinned. No, I and I alone have sinned against God. I alone have offended God by my actions. So it was godly sorrow that led the young man to leave that place and to go back home. 
So what we see here is that his repentance became complete when he turned away from his old ways, his old thinking, his old lifestyle, and he turned in the direction where his father was and headed home. You can say that repentance is like driving on a highway. Imagine yourself driving on a highway heading south. And you're driving and you've already covered about 20 or 30 miles. And then you realize, oh, I'm going the wrong way. I should be going north. Repentance is not thinking about changing directions. Repentance is not looking at others go by and wondering if they're going in the wrong direction. No, repentance is this. It's looking for the next exit, getting off, crossing over, and then finding the right road that gets you right in the right direction. Amen. Repentance is just turning away from your current situation and going to where you need to go, and that's towards God. So the process of repentance is like this. You're driving 20 miles out of the way, and you realize that you're going in the wrong direction. So what do you do? You find the nearest exit. You find the nearest on-ramp. But this isn't just any or- I'm off-ramp, I should say. But this isn't any ordinary off-ramp. This is an off-ramp called confession. Where you acknowledge and agree that you and you only, and because of you, made the mistake of going the wrong direction. And then you have to cross over an overpass. But this isn't just an ordinary overpass. This is an overpass called grace. Where God gives you the opportunity and the privilege to turn around. Hallelujah. So, it starts with acknowledging or recognizing that you messed up. Then, which leads to confession, where you get on so that you can make that U-turn. And it's grace that crosses you over. But repentance is not yet complete. Because there's still another ramp that you have to take. A ramp that will help you take you to the right direction. And that on-ramp is called restoration. And that's the beauty of repentance. It's the restoration part of it. So you have the confession off-ramp, which leads to the grace overpass, which crosses you over and puts you right in front of that restoration ramp to get you in the right direction. That's what repentance is all about. Now, this is where many people get hung up. Because once your repentance has been accomplished, once it's been complete, you may still find yourself 20 miles out of the way. Are you hearing me? You you get on the road, you find yourself that you're, you're 20 miles out of the way or 20 years out of the way. Or that you've been going 20 years the wrong way all this time. And again, this is where many people get stuck. Because they realize that because they've been going the wrong way for so long, they might have, their thinking is, I might as well just continue in that same wrong direction. But can I tell you something? How many of you realize that when you're going on a road trip... And let's say you're going to Pennsylvania, which is what, about a six-hour ride? Or, or New Jersey, which is about, what, seven hours? Do you ever realize that the, the journey home always seems shorter than the ride going up? Yes. You, you ever notice that? Yes. Your journey towards God 
will always be shorter than your journey away from God. Please remember that. Because when you don't think that way, you don't remember that, you're going to get stuck heading in the wrong direction. But don't get discouraged because you've been drifting away so far. Because your journey back to God is always shorter than your journey away from Him. And listen to me. I believe that God is speaking to some of us here today. Because there are some of us who need to repent from something that has put distance between you and God. I believe that many of us have something to repent from. Amen. I understand why you're quiet. That's okay. But you understand, repentance is not just for the unsaved. Repentance is also for the believer. You know, Christians, for Christians, repentance should always be a lifestyle. <laughs> go with me to 1 uh, John, John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, because you see, repentance is not a one-shot deal. And the reason for that is because God knows that life happens. How many of you know what I'm talking about? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So we understand why John wrote this letter. So that we may not sin. Well, look at what else he says. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. A counselor, a representative, someone who will plead our case for us in heaven. And that is Jesus Christ the righteous. In 1 John 1, 9 it says, But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But understand this, folks. This is not a license to sin. Let's say that you accidentally, how many of you drink coffee? How many of you have ever spilled coffee on your shirt? On your tie? And how many of you know that whenever you uh, spill coffee on you, you leave a stain? Amen? It wasn't uh, not intentional, but you still did it, and it still produced a stain. Let's say you intentionally spilled coffee on your shirt. I don't know why would anyone would do that, but, but you're still going to produce a stain. But either way, whether you do it intentionally or accidentally, you're still going to have a stain that needs to be cleaned. I'm going somewhere with this. But the only thing you don't do is take off your shirt and dip it in coffee. <laughs> I promise you I'm going somewhere with this. Listen to me. Don't let the fact that because you have detergent at home cause you to dip your life in sin. Don't just say that because you have a washing machine at home or a dryer at home that you can get as dirty as you want or as you can. You see, God recognizes that every now and then you're going to spill coffee. He understands that now and then there are going to be times and moments where we're going to get sloppy. Where we're going to get careless. And something might go wrong. But God wants us to know, according to 1 John 2, 1, and according to John 1, 9, 
He wants us to know that when sin happens, there's a place for us to get cleaned. Are you hearing me? In other words, he has a holy detergent to clean us with. There's a washing machine that we can go to to get cleaned up. We have repentance and then we have confession. In Psalm 51 and verse 2, David understood this when he said, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. But listen to me, we shouldn't abuse the privilege of repenting and confession. The point to confession and repentance of our sins is when we need to, because life happens. But not to engage in as much sin as possible because God made it possible for us to repent and forgive. This is why we need to have a lifestyle of repentance. But it's not a license to sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul says this. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he responds emphatically, certainly not. We don't go around sinning on purpose just because we know that we can always go back and find a place to get cleaned up. Because listen to me, every time we sin, we wander away from God. Every time we take a step out of his will, we're taking a step away from him. Every time we take several steps away from God or out of his will, we are taking several steps away from him. And when we do that, we wander off from under his umbrella of protection, provision, and security. And this is what the the prodigal son did. He left his father's uh, protection, security, and provision to go his own way. And how did that work out for him? But he knew that in order to get that security back, in order to get those provisions back, in order to get that protection back, he had to turn back to his father. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So, well, go go to Luke chapter 19. Let's look at another example of what repentance looked like. Luke chapter 19. We're going to read about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Now, let me tell you something about a tax collector during that time. The tax collector was considered to be corrupt and the most hated of all people in that group. And the reason for that was because they served as agents to the Roman government. They were Jews themselves, but they served the Roman government, and their responsibility was to tax them. Now, there was a certain percentage that they were to tax that goes to the Roman government. Now, what these characters did was overtax the people so that when they all got the money in, they gave the percentage that was required to the Roman government and then kept the rest themselves, which meant that they were very wealthy people at the expense of their own people. And Zacchaeus was considered the chief collector, so he's probably among the worst of all the tax collectors. But look at what it says in verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho and says, Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, obviously. Now look down in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, saw him, and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. You know, it's like me telling you, hey, Ron, guess what? I'm going to your house today. So you better prepare me a nice meal, some good snacks with some hot sauce. 
And then in verse 6 he says, So he made haste and came down and received them joyfully. Now skip down to verse 8 because this is what I want you to see. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone, by false accusation, I restore fourfold. By making that statement, he's, in, he's, he's in making an admission of guilt. Admitting that he was guilty. And the fact that, and, and this is what I'm talking about. This is what, I, the Bible says that repentance demands a change. It demands a radical, total, and complete change. And that's what we see here with the, with the, uh, the, the tax collector. He was rich, he was wealthy because he exploited his people, but he was willing to give it all back for the sake of turning to Christ and living a life for Christ. That's a radical change. Zacchaeus came to a place where he realized that his behavior was wrong. And he knew that he needed to do an about face. And that's exactly what he did. And he was willing to make restitution for the people that he cheated. Again, a radical change. A complete turnaround. And if he was to visit the people, people would not. How many of you, when you first got saved, and you got to your family or your friends, and it was hard for them to believe the change that took place in your life? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they look at you and say, man, I can't believe it. I, I knew you the way you used to be, but it's hard for me to believe that you are who you are now. Well, that's because you all came to a place of repentance. And you allowed a radical change to take place in your life. Because you decided to turn in the direction towards the Lord. And good for you for that. Now go to Acts chapter uh, 11. Let's switch gear a little bit. Acts chapter 11. Repentance is God's idea. It was God's idea from the beginning because of his grace. In order to prevent us or to provide us with the opportunity to repent. Now that's a very important word that I want you to get. It was all part of God's plan when it comes to the Gentiles, to give them the opportunity to repent. When Peter came to Jerusalem, he reported to the apostles because they heard that Peter was witnessing to the Gentiles. Now, they believed that salvation was only for the Jews. But when they got wind that, hey, wait a minute, he's preaching to the Gentiles too. And so they began to question him. And Peter began to tell them the story about how God appeared to him in a vision or in a dream, telling him that God has opened the door for salvation, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And not only that, he began to tell them the story how the Gentiles also received the baptism in the Holy Ghost. So in verse 18, after they all heard this, they said, the Bible says that when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. And they said, we can see that God also has given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. They said that they were praising God. Why? Because the Gentiles received the privilege from God to repent. So repentance is a gift and a privilege from God that he provides for us. Why? So that we can have life. So that our lives can change. So that our life can have meaning and purpose. Amen. Amen. You see, God wanted to avoid having bringing judgment upon our lives. That's what repentance does. It, it gives us that opportunity to avoid that. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23, which I read to you earlier, it says, Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? This is God's attitude. He says, of course not. 
I want them to turn from their wicked ways, and I want them to live. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. It was God's desire and plan all along for all men to come to a place of repentance and have life. Verse 9, it says this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all have, that all should come to the repentance, or come to the repentance. So in other words, repentance was made available for all of us so that we won't perish. Now that word perish is an interesting word because it literally means to be fully destroyed or to suffer loss. That same word is also used, is found in uh, John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, the implication in that verse is that when you don't believe in Christ, you will not receive eternal life, and you will perish. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word perish means that when a person who rejects Christ, who rejects the gift of salvation, and who rejects the gospel, and then die, die in their sins. And when they die in their sins, they live separate from God eternally. Let me say it like this. When a person dies in their sins, all hope and every opportunity that they had on this earth to receive Christ is no longer made available for all eternity. Are you realizing how important repentance is? I want you to look at this statement, a very profound statement that this pastor uh, made concerning repentance. If you can put that up on the screen for me. It's a very powerful statement. Look what it says. God hasn't held off lighting the match for eternal fire because he finds our sins tolerable, but rather because he is patient in giving sinners an opportunity for repentance before the burning begins. Isn't that profound? Isn't that powerful? But it tells us the reason why God withholds punishment from us because he wants us to come to a place of repentance. He wants us to give us an opportunity to change our ways and change our lives. Isn't that so wonderful about God? Go to Romans chapter 2. You see, repentance is like getting another chance. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 2, Beginning in verse 4, it says this. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing or not realizing or being ignorant of the fact that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Why is God so long-suffering? Why is he so forbearing? Why is it that he's not quick to, to pull the trigger and bring judgment upon us? It's because of his goodness. It, it's interesting uh, because that word uh, forbearance is an interesting word because it means to hold in or to restrain yourself. Now, that leads me to ask this question. What is God holding in and what is he restraining himself from? He's restraining himself from bringing wrath, punishment, and judgment upon us. Why? Because God is good. 
He's long-suffering. He's patient. God, even though God is, is slow to anger, yet he's quick to receive us with compassion and receive us with, with forgiveness. Man, that's so good. Reading that verse and, and pondering on it makes me realize that I don't think we realize how God spares us day to day, week to week, and month to month. I don't think we have any idea what His goodness provides. In football and in basketball and in most other sports, there's what we call halftime. And halftime is an extended break in the middle of a game. How many of you understand that? I know most of you are not sports, some of you are not sports fans, but please bear with us. <laughs> but halftime is like a break, like a lunch break, okay? <clears throat> and so it, it's an opportunity for the team to get together, gather themselves. It's also an opportunity for the coach to call on their struggles and address their struggles and then encourage them to do a better job in the second half. You see, the beauty of halftime is that there's a whole second half to turn things around. Halftime acts like a grace period. No matter how bad your first half was, you still have the second half to turn things around, to change things and make things right. Amen? Now, for many Christians, and for many of us today, we've all had some bad first halves. We've all been struggling in our walk with the Lord. Many of us have been struggling in our faith. But the good news is that God calls halftime. Amen. He gives us a chance to gather us together, to address our struggles, to, to encourage us, and then to empower us to do a better job in the second half. <laughs> in other words, he gives us the opportunity. He gives us a second chance to get ourselves together, to get ourselves focused so that our lives can be better today and tomorrow than it was yesterday. He gives us a chance to make things right and make things better. We saw that example with the tax collector. He was willing to make it right by giving back to the poor and everything that he robbed from them. It was his opportunity that God had given him to change some things and to change up his life. That's what God gives to us. Amen. He gives us that opportunity. Now go back to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. One of the most beautiful things about repentance is restoration. Restoration restores us back to right relationship with God. Luke 15, beginning verse 20, which we talked about earlier. And he says, And the prodigal son arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, 
to the servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring in his hand and sandals on his feet. Now, as we read in verse 20, we see how the father greeted him, not with anger, not with resentment, not with an I told you so speech, but the Bible says that he came to the son and greeted him with compassion, embraced him and kissed him. But then he did something else. He had the servants call for the best robe in the house to place on his son. He called to have a ring placed on his finger and to put sandals on his feet. Now, those three items are very significant in repentance. It's a very significant thing in restoration. Because, you see, when he said to put the best robe on his son, the best robe in the house was his father's. And he had it placed on his, on his filthy rags. Then he had the servant come up with a ring. This wasn't just any ring. It was a family ring. It was a ring that, was sim- that symbolized a reinstatement of a person's position in the household. Then he had them call, uh, this call the servants to put sandals on his feet because obviously he was barefoot. Now, the only group of people during that time that walked barefoot were slaves. They normally did not wear sandals. So whenever you see someone walking around barefoot, it's because they were a slave. And if you remember in verse 19, when I first read this to you in the beginning of this, of this message, how when he, when he got up and said he, he was going to tell his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he says, make me like one of your servants. By the father having sandals placed on his feet, his father was saying, son, I'm not going to receive you as my servant. I'm going to receive you only as my son. And reinstate you and restore you back to your rightful place as my son. When you and I repent and turn to God, God is restoring us back to our rightful place as sons and daughters. In John chapter 1 and verse 12 says this, But to as many as did receive and welcome him, he gave the authority, the power, the privilege, the right to become the children of God. See, God's love towards us is constant, is patient, and welcoming. He will search for you when we wander off. And he will give you an opportunity to respond and come back. But he will not force you to come back to him. But what he will do, like the father in the story, he will be patient and wait for us to come to our senses until we come back. And when we do come back, he's waiting there to place his robe on you, to place his ring to reinstate you, and to place his sandals on you to put you back in your rightful place as son and daughters. You cannot tell me that God is not good. Amen. You cannot tell me that the goodness of God will not lead a person to repentance because it does. I'm going to do something a little bit different this, uh, this morning. And I know there's a lot of time left, and that's okay. 
But what I want to do is this. Upon hearing this word, I want to open up the altars for any of you who feel that God has been stirring in your heart and saying, come home. And this is not the time to be embarrassed or ashamed. This is the time for you and God to communicate and make things right. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to call you people to come up right over here, right along, right directly in front of the altar, and just have a personal one-on-one with God. Just you and Him. Amen? Come on up. Don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed. This is a very vital thing. This is between you and God and nobody else's business. Come right up here, right up to the altar, right here, right alongside here or right up here. You can get right over here. No, you can go right down here, my friend. Yeah. Right, right down, right down here. Yeah. Just, just right here, just in front here. And just turn directly to the altar and just talk to God, just you and him, okay? Yeah.